0: The CPHI Podcast Series.
1: Hello and welcome back to the CPHI Podcast Series, your monthly soundbite on the trends and developments impacting the global pharma value chain. I'm Rebecca Lumley, Pharma Editor at Informa Markets, and in this episode, we'll be diving into the world of supplements and examining the impact of COVID 19 on this booming market. The term supplement covers a broad range of products with many different applications from vitamins and minerals to herbs, fish oils, diet shakes and protein powders. While supplements can be an excellent way to cover deficiencies not addressed by food intake, the diverse range of products found in supermarkets, health shops and pharmacies can be overwhelming for consumers and make it difficult to decipher what is best on an individual level. Nonetheless, the supplements market is on the rise and these products are increasingly cementing their place in people's daily routines. In this episode, we have the pleasure of being joined by David Ridley, senior editor at HPW Insight to discuss the trends shaping the market, the impact of the pandemic and the concurrent rise of wellness culture. David writes about the European consumer healthcare industry focusing on OTC drugs and dietary supplements, covering a wide range of topics in the areas of business strategy, market intelligence, regulatory affairs, new technology and marketing. David also hosts the Over the Counter podcast, along with his HPW colleague, Hannah Daniel, in which they talk to leading industry figures and experts on the latest consumer healthcare issues and trends. David, you're very welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks very much for having me.
1: So to begin with, we know the supplements market has grown quite rapidly in recent years, and this growth is expected to continue into the future. To begin, could you tell us what you think is driving this?
2: I was looking at the data again and it's quite interesting. I found an interesting report by Price Waterhouse Coopers that's published around the beginning of the pandemic or just before. And it showed that globally supplements growth was actually starting to kind of stall. You know, the strong growth that you'd seen over preceding years had started to kind of slow down a bit, especially in North America where it was even going backwards slightly. And then during COVID supplement sales and use just completely boomed. So in Europe, for example, which is the area I cover, HW Insight, sales went up from about 1 billion packs to 1.3 billion packs between 2019, per year between 2019 and 2021, according to the European Self-Care Industry Association and IQView consumer health data. So that's a huge leap. And then if you look at kind of major consumer health markets, So in the UK, over that period, sales have gone up 15%, France 12%, Italy 12%. So you can see a huge jump up there. And then in terms of drivers, it's been a long-term growth, accelerated during COVID. But, you know, some of the kind of key drivers is a general concern for health and well-being. And as part of that, a kind of increase in health literacy in the sense that people can find out more easily about all sorts of stuff on the internet. But, you know, health related inquiries are one of the most popular kind of searches you'll find. And then, especially during COVID, people were looking up how to not get COVID, how to stay healthy, how to improve your immunity, this kind of thing. And then supplements in general have always been something that people take to help you remain healthy. You know, the purpose of them is to s- supplement your diet, basically. So if you don't think that you're going to get, the vitamins and minerals in particular that your body needs from your diet maybe because you don't cook that much or you're very busy or you have a very specific nutritional need or issue then you might take a supplement but then during covid you know this was really amplified so people were looking in a very targeted way for immunity boosting minerals and supplements so you know most people will know vitamin c as a immunity boosting vitamin But then vitamin D was a really, really popular one. So we wrote a lot about vitamin D and there was a lot of hype about vitamin D. And vitamin D is recommended by governments that people should take it if they don't think they're going to get enough sunlight, for example. But it plays a variety of roles in the body in maintaining your immunity. We could talk talk a bit more about vitamin D in a minute, maybe. Zinc, magnesium as well. And then e-commerce, which is generally boosted, but has been growing for many years. In Europe, OTC drugs are not always accessible online different countries have different rules about buying these products online supplements are however regulated as foods in europe so they tend to be a bit more easy to buy you know in lockdowns people went online a lot
1: that is interesting Uh, to say that actually i remember early 2021 there being a big rush on vitamin d and i think one of the big e-commerce guys like amazon or somebody announced that they you know there was massive shortages across the board
2: yeah, a lot of supply chain problems, but uh, particularly ingredients. Yeah, there was so much demand. I mean, the boom for vitamin D was really huge. Uh, well, I'm not surprised that shops run out and, yeah, online. And then just also public health budgets. So this is a general kind of trend in self-care, so in the consumer health market. You know, the main argument for consumer health and particularly over-the-counter medicines is, you know, that they relieve a lot of pressure on public health budgets, which are already squeezed, various other trends doing that. But if you can encourage consumers to invest in their own healthcare and they don't need to go to the um, doctors or the hospital, that really helps. And then, of course, during COVID, health hospitals, primary care in general was under huge pressure. Yeah, this has kind of accelerated that long-term trend as well. And supplements is part of that kind of self-care ecosystem. You know, if you can look after yourself then you're not going to go to the doctor. So there's that strong preventative element which dietary supplements really tap into.
1: Absolutely. That was an aspect I was interested in kind of talking about a bit more because even before the pandemic, I think we have seen this shift towards, as you said, a more preventative approach a more individualised approach. People kind of taking more of an interest in health and wellness and the concept of self-care. What you've seen, has this had an impact on the types of products that consumers are choosing to spend their money on?
2: The immunity products, like I've said, I mean, that was a really obvious one over the last couple of years. Vitamin D I've mentioned, but then also omega-3 is another one. Uh, People, I mean, I've got my multivitamin and my omega-3 tablet, which I take every day, but that's because I don't eat a lot of fish and I live in the middle of the UK, nowhere near a sea. So it's just very difficult to eat the right kind of things to get that. So I take one of those, vitamin A, vitamin B. These are kind of classic supplement ingredients that are well-established and, you know, they have these kind of benefits that are supported and governments might recommend people take these kinds of ones. But then there are newer or, you know, more specifically health-related supplements. So they might be called nutraceuticals, which are basically supplements that are supposed to deliver some sort of health benefit, not just replace something you're not getting and mental and cognitive health for example is a is a big area in in this and this is also related to the pandemic but people are taking a lot of supplements for sleep and stress for example and melatonin is a popular ingredient for both actually but especially for sleep but that's interesting because in the uk that's not a supplement that's classed as a medicine and then stuff like curcumin which is turmeric based ingredient And then there's naturals as well, botanicals, might have heard that term, which is basically where you have a plant-derived ingredient in there. And there's a strong association with, you know, natural alternatives, which is also very popular now with kind of worries about climate change, etc. And you've got some kind of classic ingredients like ginkgo, echinacea. Echinacea is is widely believed to be a, a natural cold remedy. So people take echinacea. A lot of people in Europe drink herbal teas. That's another way to kind of supplement, not in tablet form. But, you know, this is a problematic area. Maybe something we want to talk about a bit more. But botanicals, because they go beyond, you know, what classically a supplement is meant to be. They tend to push up against regulations around health claims. So, you know, health claims are really kind of linked to medicines. And then when supplements start making health claims, It becomes quite difficult to get them approved and in Europe all of these health claims for botanical ingredients were reviewed by uh, the food regulator EFSA which found that the evidence was lacking so that these have been put on hold while the European Commission decides what to do about the situation so there's a very unclear environment for business but also you know for consumers around around these ingredients even though they're extremely popular so that's quite interesting.
1: Yeah, that is a great point. That is just anecdotally something I've noticed myself, perhaps kind of an increased scepticism around supplements, which is obviously such a broad term, but Mm. specifically because of, yeah, the uncertainty around some of the health claims from the more natural products.
2: It's a difficult contradiction because on the one hand, you know, it's desirable to have clarity on what these ingredients do and consumers really want to know if they buy this product, is it going to work? But at the same time, the level of evidence required, you know, a lot of these are what they call traditional herbal ingredients. So they are approved on the basis, well, traditional medicines are approved on the basis that they've been used safely for, I think it's 25 years, 30 years in Europe. And then there is then also a review of the kind of evidence for particular claims. But it's maybe not the same kind of evidence that you would expect for an over-the-counter drug. Which used to be a prescription drug. And then, you know, EFSA is expecting extremely strong evidence for these claims in food, because these are classed as food. So it's a really difficult situation at the moment, and no one really knows what's going to happen. Everyone's waiting for the European Commission to move forward on it.
0: Are you struggling to cut through the noise? The pharmaceutical industry can be a crowded market. Partner with CPHI Online the largest farmer marketplace and community worldwide. Get direct access to 280,000 farmer buyers and gather qualified leads all year round to help build your pipeline and grow your revenue. With CPHI Online, you'll be able to stand out from the competition and reach a large global farmer audience. To learn more about promoting your company using only one platform, go to cphionline.com.
1: Right, and another product that I, I suppose I've heard has been having some regulatory difficulties as well is CBD. Could you maybe explain a little bit about what's happening in that space?
2: So, cannabidiol, which is a derivative of cannabis, it's very confusing. I mean, there's a kind of low THC version of the plant which is used as hemp, um, and you know you can buy hemp products. All sorts of hemp products in a variety of different forms, perfectly fine. But CBD is extracted from low THC cannabis and then sold as a supplement in oil or, you know, in lots of different forms now, like CBD drinks, for example, CBD chocolate, all sorts of stuff. And it's a massive market. It's absolutely just gone mad over the last couple of years since a couple of regulatory changes. Uh, for example, in the US and the EU. But the problem with CBD is that these tweaks to the regulation around um, low THC cannabis has allowed these markets to appear, but there wasn't really a regulatory framework in place. So both in the US and the EU and the UK, the UK now, you know, not in the European Union, have tried to retrospectively regulate this market. And it really is complicated for all the reasons we've kind of mentioned already about, you know, the idea of, of a supplement that has a health benefit. And anecdotally, there are these benefits from CBD around sleep and pain. Of course, there are also medicinal CBD products now uh, approved, for example, for epilepsy. It's a bit of a mess, basically, to cut a long story short. And, you know, there's been some progress, for example, in the UK, they've got this list where all of the CBD products are on this list while the regulator goes through them and approves them or doesn't approve them as a novel food. So the general framework is a novel food, which is a a food that ingredient that hasn't been used or hasn't been on the market since recently. And yeah, so they're moving forward, but it's taking a long time and there's just been a lot of controversy. It hasn't really helped increase confidence in these products because Consumers are completely confused, and the industry is quite confused as well as to what's going on. And it's a similar situation in Europe. So, you know, it's moving, but I think maybe by the, time, <laughs> by the time that it's all sorted, consumers might have moved on. There's some evidence to say that CBD's maybe started to slow down the kind of growth in popularity. So it's a very interesting area. It gives us lots to write about in HBW Insight.
1: Interesting, yeah, that it could be potentially a bit of a flash in the pan because of because of the difficulties you mentioned. And another area that I was quite curious about and that I've seen a lot about um, myself over the last couple of years is is gut health and an increased interest in the gut microbiome. I was wondering if that has translated into increased interest in products like probiotics, prebiotics, things like that.
2: Definitely, yeah, definitely. Probiotics have um, also really... Grown as a really popular uh, kind of subcategory of of food supplements, but also really widely, you know, probiotics come in a variety of forms as well. So probably most popular way for people to consume probiotics is in yogurts. And so in Europe, sales of probiotics, in ge- like general, probiotics has has grown, you know, by about nine ten percent over the last couple of years, or well, last since two thousand eighteen, should I say? And probiotic supplements account for about a quarter of that. It's interesting because geographically the picture looks a little bit different in this sub-market of supplements and consumer health. So Italy's the largest market in Europe. It's actually the third largest market for probiotics in the world now, according to the uh, International Probiotics Association. And that's to do with they have a little bit more of an open approach to probiotics. You can't use the term probiotics in the European Union to refer to these products because the definition of a probiotic itself contains a health claim so it's the world health organization definition for example is that it's a live microorganism which when administered in adequate amounts confers a health benefit on the host so going back to the discussion about botanicals this is already building a health claim into it which needs to be backed up by very strong evidence which is not necessarily there for probiotics yet although you know I'm not an expert in this area. I'm just learning about it now. But there just seem to be a lot of evidence. It's much more, there's quite a wide and seems to be quite strong evidence base for probiotics. So, you know, there is a health claim for um, gut health, going back to your point about gut health, for probiotics. So that's, gut health is a, is probably the most established area where probiotics is seen to have a benefit. And that's, you know, where it's been used more, most popularly. But then also, People are increasingly aware about the gut-brain axis, you know, the relationship between your microbiome mm. and your mental health, which is a very interesting area.
1: So what direction do you see supplements market heading over the next couple of years? Do you have any kind of predictions for what will be the trends of the future where consumer interest uh, may lie?
2: Yeah, so it's always difficult to make predictions, isn't it? I suppose there are some factors that will shape this sector in the future as to like ingredients, I think it's very difficult to predict. You know, I mean, this is the thing about events like the pandemic, they just completely shift habits and preferences, so who knows what's coming up. But I think in general, move towards self-care is is gonna continue because that is a long-term trend. And I think we see in the consumer healthcare industry a much more proactive approach from companies and also industry associations in promoting self-care, that will have an impact. So I think you have, you know, big companies making a bit more of an effort to explain why self-care is important and also meet consumer demand for particular products, you know, that go beyond traditional self-care, you know, like cough and cold products or products that address an acute or chronic health need so you go and buy product for that and then hopefully it'll go away but you know companies are also responding to this desire for preventative health and then the more they do you know the more options that consumers will have and hopefully that market will grow you also have a trend towards consumer health companies kind of spinning out and and becoming independent from their prescription and pharmaceutical parent companies so i think that will also accelerate that become more risk-taking So you talk about this idea of a self-care movement a lot in the in the industry at the moment and then i said before about health budgets being under strain you know during the pandemic there's still you know that massive expenditure on public health is you know still needs to be recovered in some way so governments will be prioritizing other forms of more acute health and so Self care in general is a good way for governments to save money, as you know, shown in previous studies. And most recently there's a global self care federation report that's quantified this a little bit. So self care currently saves about 120 billion a year globally for healthcare systems. And if governments and regulators and industry were more proactive in promoting self care, this could go up to 180 billion a year. So there's a strong case for, for that public health as well. There are some problems as well. There are things holding back this growth. You know, some of the issues I've raised, like borderlines between medicines and supplements, health claims, you know, how to innovate in this area without getting into trouble with advertising regulations or regulators. Difficult. And then linked to that, you know, public trust. Uh, If you can't say what, you know, product is for, it's very difficult uh for consumers to really know much about them as well. You know, that provides a, a good function, being able to say, you know, what it does you know, builds trust with consumers. So, you know, you said before that there's a little bit of wariness, I think, on the part of consumers now about what they're buying. So it can be a double-edged sword. And then, of course, inflation, you know, not as much money to spend on on things that may not be as urgent So will you know? I think it's an open question at the moment. Will people keep buying food supplements um, if they haven't got as much money? I don't think we can know the answer to that yet. So you know, trends are by definition things that kind of come and go. So you know, is supplement use a trend or is it part of everyday life now? I think it's very difficult to say.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we're kind of approaching the subject at an interesting point in time. We're at a certain point in the pandemic. We, you know, it's not over, but we've come a long way since, since early 2020. Um, mm. And now, yeah, with, with, um, with inflation, the cost of living crisis, as you mentioned, it will be really interesting to see kind of which direction this market goes in.
2: Yeah, I think it's something to come back to.
1: Definitely. Well, David, that is all we have time for today, but thank you so much for joining us and thank you for listening to this episode. For more news, features and expert content on all things impacting pharmaceutical supply chains, manufacturing, drug development, packaging and drug delivery, please head to cphionline.com.
0: Thank you for listening to the CPHI podcast series. For pharmaceutical news, webinars, events and more, visit cphionline.com.